This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Salvatore Maggiore and colleagues entitled High Flow versus Venturi Mask Oxygen Therapy to Prevent Reintubation in Hypoxemic Patients After Extubation, a Multicenter Randomized Clinical Trial. I'm joined today by lead author of the study from the Reno Trial Study Group, Dr. Salvatore Maggiore, Professor of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at the Gabriele de Annunzio University in Chieti and Chair of the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at the Policlinical of Chieti. So welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be with you. Dr. Maggiore, I'd like to start by commenting that this study appears to be from a very broad group, a multi-center group of investigators from all over Europe. Can you tell me a little bit about the Reno Trial Study Group? Yes, the Reno Trial Study Group was made of several investigators in Europe and the study was conducted in particular in 13 ICU in uh, France, in uh, Italy, in Spain, in, uh, in Greece. And I take this occasion uh, to thank again the old uh, investigators for their commitment during all the phases of the study. And uh, uh, if I can, I would like also to mention Professor Jordi Mantebo in particular, uh, and I do this because unfortunately Jordi passed away a few, few days ago, so really a short time after the appearance of our article on the Blue Journal website. So Jordi was really a fundamental role in, in, in all the study from the design to interpretation and data analysis, supported the study at all stages. And really, I want to dedicate this article to his memory. I'm sure I'm doing this also on behalf of all the authors. I agree. Dr. Mancebo was a prolific investigator who cast a very large shadow over both European and American fields of pulmonary and critical care medicine. His death is definitely going to uh, impact us all. Getting back to your study, this is an RCT looking at whether high flow oxygen versus venturi oxygenation after extubation reduces rates of reintubation. But before we get into that study, can you explain the rationale for how these therapies reduce reintubation compared to low-flow oxygen? I mean, at the time of oxygenation, many of these patients don't require high fractions of inspired oxygen. So what's the benefit of giving all that extra oxygen? So thank you for this question, which allows me to clarify what is the role of giving high-flow oxygen mixture to patients. Indeed, the problem is not that of giving a lot of oxygen, but that of giving a high gas flow to patients. This can be done uh, typically in recent years with the uh, high flow nasal scanner, and you can set the FeO2 with these devices. So you can also set a high gas flow rate at 21% FeO2, so you give a high flow of air, not oxygen. 
So really the point is, is not giving a lot of oxygen, but giving a very high flow as uh, compared to conventional oxygenation devices. Now, conventional oxygenation devices are low flow oxygen, but uh, they deliver in, in general low gas flow to the patient. The Venturi mask is an a classical traditional oxygenation device, which is a, a little different from these uh, standard uh, low flow oxygenation devices. In that uh, uh, these devices, because of the Venturi effect, uh, may generate a high gas flow with a nominal FeO2 inside the mask where the patient's breath. So really, again, the, the point here is not giving a lot of oxygen, but try to investigate the effect of two devices which are able to deliver high gas flow to the patient. Now, that's a great point that this is more of an issue of high flow rather than the uh, fraction of oxygen. Now, there have already been several studies that have compared different oxygen delivery systems after extubation, including high-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, non-invasive helmet oxygenation, and venturi masks, including your study from 2014. So what were the unanswered questions that you were hoping to address with this study? Yes, actually, the present study was uh, the logical continuation of our study published in 2014 of the Blue Journal. In that study, we again compare eye flow with the Venturi mask in terms of physiological short-term effects. And we did find actually that although both devices are able to generate a nominal eye gas flow, the eye flow nasal cannula was able to improve oxygenation and also other physiological parameters better than the the Venturi mask, and secondary outcome of outcomes of that study, we found that also the intubation rate and the use of non-invasive ventilation as a rescue therapy was reduced with high flow nasal oxygen as compared to the Venturi mask. Of course, that study was not powered, was not aimed to these latter outcomes, and uh, therefore, we designed the present study exactly to uh, assess the effect of these two devices on clinical outcome, like reintubation and also other important clinical outcomes. One challenge that I've noticed with interpreting these extubation studies is that the usual care often changes very much between institutions. And so, as you mentioned, this was a multi-center study. And I presume each center has their own practice patterns regarding mechanical ventilation, weaning, as well as extubation. So can you describe what sort of patients were eligible and how you dealt with the sort of heterogeneous respiratory management between institutions? Yes, of course, we cannot be able to standardize all the mechanical ventilation practices, but we try to have a standard approach to weaning across all these institutions, exactly because our study was aimed to um, test the efficacy of high-flow nasal oxygen or venturi mask during winning. And before we had the eligibility, different eligibility criteria, including the, the duration of mechanical ventilation before extubation, which had to be longer than 48 hours and patients needed to be eligible to a spontaneous bidding trial called to predefined criteria, they needed to pass 
successfully dexpontranal uh, breeding trial again according to predefined criteria. And in addition, we had another criterion, which was a sort of oxygenation criterion to be included in the study, which was to have, uh, we can uh, simplify, to have a, a PO2-FO2 ratio below 300 in the two hours after extubation while breeding with a Venturi mask at 31% FO2. So this was standardized and just to try to have uh, a similar population in all centers. And this was the, the, the only factors we, we, we can actually, we were interested in controlling for the aim of the, of the study. Yeah, I thought that the attempt to have fairly strict eligibility criteria as well as fairly strict success and failure criteria was a great component of that study. Can you go into a bit of detail about what those two treatment arm protocols were? One, when the patient successfully passed the spontaneous breeding trial, were extubated and had an oxygenation criterion within one, uh, two hours from extubation, which is a PO2-FIO2 ratio below 300, they were randomized to receive standard treatment with the Venturi mask with the um, FIO2 adjusted to an oxygenation target of oxygen saturation between 92 and 98 or 88, 95% in case of hypercapnic patients. While the intervention group, those, uh, those patients receiving the high flow nasal oxygen, of course, were put under high flow devices with the gas flow set at the highest value at the beginning, 50 or 60 liter per minute with temperature, gas temperature of 37 degree Celsius. And then this value of gas flow and temperature were adjusted based on patient comfort. The FeO2 with the high flow nasal oxygen was, was set to reach the same oxygenation target as in the Venturi mass group, which was uh, again between 92 and 98% oxygen saturation in hypercapnic was a little bit lower, as said, between 88 and 95%. I thought that your attempt to try to standardize these treatment arms was admirable. I thought it was a great job to try to make a fairly standard protocol after extubation. Now, I noticed that the study protocols allowed for patients that were allocated to the high-flow oxygen to replace it with the Venturi mask, but the patients who were allocated to the Venturi mask were not allowed to cross over. What was the reason for that decision? First of all, we want to make uh, interpretation clear, both for us and for the clinicians, for the readers. Because when crossover is, uh, is important, as you know, it is a, a little bit more difficult to really interpret the results of a randomized controlled trial. That's the reason why we did not want the patients with the Venturi mask crossover to iPhone as oxygen and vice versa. However, we were also concerned that we wanted to control the iPhone as oxygen treatment until the patient was in ICU. So we designed the study in order to allow patients who received high-flown nasal oxygen in the ICU to be discharged from the ICU to the ward 
with a conventional oxygenation device and we standardize this device as the Venturi mask. So the use of the Venturi mask in the iFlow group was a sort of step-down approach just for discharge. Otherwise, uh, all patients randomized to receive iFlow nasal oxygen receive these devices uh, within the ICU stay. So one point that I had alluded to earlier was about your excellent attempt to standardize treatment as well as success or failure. And I wanted to kind of point out that a challenge with a lot of these sorts of studies is the decision to reintubate is often very subjective and physicians can't be blinded to these treatments. They know what the patient's receiving. So how did you deal with this sort of subjectivity? Yes, of course, this is an important point, and this is continually a, a limitation for all this kind of study where the decision to intubate cannot be masked, of course, patients and also to investigators. So that's the reason why we really wanted to standardize, strictly standardize, the criteria for the intubation as well the criteria for using or rescue non-invasive ventilation in both groups. This is the reason why we had really strict predefined criteria. In addition to that, at least for the primary outcome, which was reintubation with, within 72 hours from uh, enrollment, we also, just to, to try to compensate this unavoidable limitation of this kind of study, we also had an adjudication committee which was blinded to the treatment who a posteriori reviewed all in reintubation charts in which all the criteria for reintubation were listed from every single patient. And this adjudication committee, which was done by three experts, reviewed all these charts in order to check if, a posteriori, of course, if the decision to intubate was uh, in accordance with our predefined criteria for intubation as prescribed in the protocol. Yeah, I think that you guys did an admirable job, and that should serve as an example for other investigators who are trying to do studies in this area. It was a really great job. So the study that you conducted enrolled 517 patients out of 557 eligible patients, which is just remarkably high rate of enrollment for an RCT. Do you have any insight on how or why you had such a high rate of enrollment? Do not have a precise answer to this question. Of course, I can imagine that all the investigators were highly committed to the study. And probably also the fact that despite having very strict criteria defining uh, several uh, procedures in the study, in general, probably our criteria for enrollment were not so, let's say, difficult in the, in the real clinical life. And this could, or at least uh, this reflected what uh, was done in, uh, in the real clinical life, at least in uh, and the participating centers, and this could have made ease, uh, easier for the investigators to enroll patients once they were eligible for the study. Yeah, I imagine it probably also is an easier sell to patients when uh, these are fairly acceptable therapies, but I just can't underscore the, the impressive efforts of the investigators. That's just great. So tell us about the results. What did you end up finding? So the 
The study was uh, aimed to assess the effect of high flow nasal and mask on reintubation within 72 hours from uh, the extubation, and this was our primary outcome. So in terms of primary outcome, we did not find any significant difference in the reintubation rate between these two devices, which was 13% with the high-flow nasal oxygen and 11% with the venturi mask. Also, we should say that the reintubation rate in the control group, the venturi mask group, 11%, was smaller than that hypothesized from the sample size calculation, which was 18%, because we expected that patients, the, the, the kind of patients who want to enroll with desoxygenation criteria with the, and the PSQ2 FQ2 ratio below 300 were, was uh, probably at greater risk of reintubation rate as compared to very simple patients as done in other studies. Indeed, uh, our, the reintubation rate in our control group was well below what we expected. So we should say that our study is also possibly under power for detecting smaller, smaller difference between the two arms. But we should also say that there was no clear trend in difference between the two arms. So this made uh, more credible our results, despite uh, the fact that the study was clearly underpowered as compared to what we hypothesized. We had also, of course, other secondary outcomes. Uh, the most important was reintubation within 28 days to see the effect of these devices on a much longer period of time. And again, there was no difference in the reintubation rate at 28 days, 21% with high flow nasal oxygen versus 23% with venturi mask. And we also allowed the use of rescue non-invasive ventilation in these patients, according again to predefined criteria, and this is very important. And we found that the use of rescue non-invasive ventilation was significantly lower with high flow nasal oxygen, both at 72 hours and 28 days. At 72 hours was 8% with the high flow nasal oxygen versus 17% with the venturi mask. So in other words, we had the similar reintubation rate, which much less use of rescue non-invasive ventilation with high flow nasal oxygen, with high flow nasal in this group. While with the venturi mask, the reintubation rate was similar, but using much more frequently the rescue non-invasive ventilation again in the venturi mask uh, uh, group while uh, we did not find any other significant differences concerning other clinical outcomes including mortality yes i thought your secondary outcome of looking at rescue non-invasive ventilation was all the more impressive or poignant because of how strict the application of it was makes it much more uh, interpretable now as I had mentioned earlier, there are a lot of studies that have examined post-extubation strategies, including the PROPER trial that was published last year, which showed no difference in high-flow nasal cannula versus usual care. How do we make sense of all of these studies, including your study and all of these other ones that have investigated all these different strategies post-extubation? Thank you. This is, um, I think, an important point. In fact, uh, our results are in line of those, those of, uh, of the proper trial. And I remember that in that trial, 
Although uh, compared to strategy of using non-invasive respiratory support after extubation, in one group, the re post-extubation respiratory support was protocolized, meaning that all patients received some form of non-invasive respiratory support, including high flow nasal oxygen or non-invasive ventilation. While in another group, these, uh, the use of this kind of support were uh, left at the discretion of the physician in charge. And uh, that study, as you mentioned, uh, did not find any difference in the reintubation rate. And the major difference between the two groups was exactly the use of high-flow nasal oxygen, which was much higher in the protocolized strategies. And this means taking our results and those from the proper trial altogether, I think that this means that probably, unless you have really very high level of, of tools that you can uh, use in every patient, probably you can uh, avoid to use high flow nasal oxygen in all patients, but you should select the patients who can benefit the most. And there are studies giving indication about who these patients are. For example, obese patients may benefit, as well as patients uh, with moderate hypercapnia. So probably, altogether, the study says that you really do not need to use high-flow nasal oxygen in every single patient, but this should be done according to more specific criteria. And uh, these underline also the role of physicians who can uh, use their clinical judgment and their competence, just ev evaluating every single patient in order to select the most appropriate approach for every single patient, also including high flow nasal oxygen, but also non-invasive ventilation and also standard oxygen. And if someone is able to, to do this, probably that can uh, avoid to use high-flown nasal oxygen for every single patient in the ICU after intubation. You make an excellent point about the balance between personalized, tailored care versus one-size-fits-all for everybody. Exactly. Now, I, I noticed that your study was conducted before the COVID-19 pandemic. And as you know, the pandemic has changed how we manage patients. Do you think there might have been any differences in your approach or in your outcomes if this study were done with COVID-19 patients? Of course, I have no formal answer to this because we do not have a formal randomized control trial on this issue. However, I think that from a physiological standpoint, there is no reason, no apparent reason why COVID-19 patients should be behave uh, differently from the kind of patients that we have enrolled in our study. In particular, I would like to note that COVID-19 patients very often are intubated for a longer period of time. Sometimes they have more difficulty during the winning phase. So probably these can be considered a group of patients at higher risk, where probably some forms of uh, uh, non-invasive respiratory support after distribution could be indicated. But besides this, I think that there's no reason why the results of our study should not be uh, valid also in those patients. 
I, I would agree. I'm curious, how do you and your group manage extubation? Like, what do you do clinically? Actually, what we do clinically is very similar to what we have done in the, in the uh, renal trial. We, of course, uh, have a protocols for spontaneous bleeding trial, and we try to really test uh, quite systematically the patient's readiness to undergo a spontaneous bleeding trial. And then concerning the use of non-invasive respiratory support after extubation, I should say that in my SU, for example, we are not using iPhone oxygen for all patients. We try to use iFlow or non-invasive ventilation in specific group of patients like the hypercaptic patients, obese, obese patients, those who have been mechanically ventilated for longer period of time or those who had uh, previous failure, uh, more than one failure of spontaneous bleeding trial. So in those patients, we, we, we try to use some form of non-invasive respiratory support after extubation, while all the other patients are extubation directly onto to oxygen if needed at all. But in general, all patients after extubation, at least for some time, they, they need at least a minimum amount of oxygen after extubation. So this is our routine clinical practice. That's, that's very informative. Do you have any other last advice or any other important things that clinicians should consider in post-extubation care that we haven't yet covered? No, I think that one point, that one issue that for me needs to be investigated more in the future is, is the use of rescue non-invasive ventilation after extubation. We have data, quite strong data, about the use of a facilitative NIVA, for example, in a, a COPD patients. We have uh, quite strong data by the use of uh, prophylactic uh, non-high flow nasal oxygen or prophylactic non-invasive ventilation in specific categories of patients, as I mentioned before, for example, the bees. While uh, uh, the, the data about the use of rescue non-invasive ventilation are now quite old, this data seems to suggest that rescue non-invasive ventilation uh, is, is not useful. However, if you look at the study about uh, this issue, including our study, at least in expert center, rescue non-invasive ventilation is successful in, in a, about 50% of cases. This means that half of the patients may avoid intubation if a rescue non-invasive ventilation is applied. Uh, this reminds me a lot of all the discussion that we had and we have also about the use of non-invasive respiratory support in hypoxemic patients. Also in, th in those patients, the success or failure, if you prefer, of uh, these uh, techniques is uh, around 50%. Now, um, recent studies have uh, shaded um, a little bit of more light about this issue. And I think that probably in the future, we will need more updated data on the, on the use of resting on invasive ventilation post-distribution, just to understand uh, uh, which patients this could work, which patients is better to avoid it, and, and, and so on. And those are excellent thoughts for future investigation. I think this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Maggiore, for a great discussion on a study on high-flow oxygen versus Venturi mask, reducing reintubation, as well as 
is insights on post-extubation care. This is still a very important question. I expect we'll be seeing more study in this area. Congratulations on the study and thank you, Dr. Maggiore. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the invitation. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.